Welcome to Battle Over Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice Favorka, and I've got Gumby. Hey, what's happening? And I've got Ed. Hey, how's it going, everybody? All right, very good. I've got Keith. I, he can, hey! I don't know. <laughs> and I've got David Burnett. Hello. Hey, you're new. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Not bad at all. Good. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. He's so new, I didn't even meet him yet. Good to meet you, Ed. Good to meet you. <laughs> yeah, it's a good friend of mine. We go back quite a bit. I'm passing out our glasses. It is a good sound guy, actually, and drummer. Sweet. A fellow drummer. Nice. <laughs> we should have a drum circle episode. That I so know. We've got like three drummers. Oh, oh man. Ross, too. That's four. We just right. need a little weed and it'll be set. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Good sir, what are you drinking over there in Milwaukee tonight? Uh, courtesy of you, fine gentlemen, uh, I got my favorite, Louis Demise. It's an amber ale for MKE Brewery, uh, one of the best local breweries in town. I think one of the best amber ales I've ever had in my life. Um, wow. So, and of course, I have to drink it in my MKE glass. Nice little head there. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, that's what I'm enjoying. Some good old Milwaukee glory right here. <laughs> it must be good because when I reached out to them, they said that they were out of all the bottles. Oh, yeah. It's it's no joke. It's it's very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> According to the specs on that, it is a, let's see, this is a medium-bodied amber ale. Starts with a rich malt flourish that's kept in perfect balance by a balance Hop finish. This MBC original is similar to a German style alt beer, and then has an ABV of 5.5 and an IBU of 24. Mm. And we will be taking in Saucy Brew Works. What's his nuts? It's a vanilla stout with peanut butter and coffee, vanilla stout with Madagascar, vanilla, peanut butter, and Honduran coffee. It's an ABV of 7.5. So let's dig in. Um, I'd like to point out, totally coincidentally, I also have Saucy Brew Works over here with their white light. Nice. <laughs> Completely unintentional. You know, Saucy's a decent little brewery. I've yeah. uh, enjoyed not just their uh, their brews, but also their pizzas are pretty doggone good. Yeah. Man, a lot of head on top of this. Yeah, look at that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That, where's the beer? <laughs> right? <laughs> that is a lot of head. I, I feel like I'm uh, getting one of those uh, slushy drinks. <laughs> yeah. Kind of worried about the name of the beer and all that, you know. <laughs> I man, it's got a nice fragrance on it, though. It it has a very gentle coffee flavor uh, aroma off the top of it. Like like. A little bit nutty and mm -hmm. a, a little bit coffee. Yeah. I don't smell the vanilla. I get the peanut butter. You taste it? I'm mm. picking up the slight, slight hints of vanilla. Kind of yeah. on the back end a little bit. You can kind of yeah. feel it coming through. Definitely a little more peanut butter cup, I think, than vanilla, though. Yeah. Kind of want to scoop some of this out. <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's good. Like, almost like a float. Bad. Hats off, saucy. Not bad. Not bad at all. It's it's thick. I will say that it's definitely thick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I almost feel like I could chew this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just yeah. talk about eating me beer, eating beer and peanut butter has me suddenly wondering, has anyone made like a Nutella ale yet? That's Ooh. gotta be a thing. A what? Nutella ale? Ah. That sounds good. <laughs> sounds plausible. That could be your thing, Keith. <laughs> Quit my job right now. <laughs> so David Burnett is a PhD candidate in New Testament and Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. He has also completed doctoral coursework toward a PhD in religious studies in Judaism and Christianity and antiquity at Marquette University. He currently serves as the religion and theology specialist for the education opportunity program at Marquette University a federal trio program to support first-generation low-income college students. Oh, wow. He has served as a graduate teaching assistant and research assistant in the Department of Theology at Marquette. 
He also studied at Tantor Ecumenical Institute of the University of Notre Dame in Jerusalem, Israel, and University of Oxford. His work has been published with Fortress Academy, Academic Lexington Press and in the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. That is a very impressive resume. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> Uh, when you've been I'm, doing the same thing for many, many years, uh, you know, that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure your bio at this point needs its own book. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I kind of wanted to do, not just, we are, we want, I want to cover uh, your last two papers. However, I'd also like to touch on some of your previous work because I don't think that I don't think anybody's really touched on all of the papers you've been putting out there. And it's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's some really, some really deep studies on it too. So well, I've been busy. <laughs> yeah. Like you have, uh, and we've covered this one previously, which was a really cool uh, paper was Abraham's star-like seed neglected functional elements in the patriarchal premise of Genesis 15. Um, promise yeah i'm sorry promise yes um that one was was very well done and uh we covered that last time Um, yeah that was my master's thesis actually yeah phenomenal deep study um i first heard that when you were doing other studies with dr heiser at at the presentations um i think at sbl and at his conference as well yeah yeah well i at his con at the naked bible conference i spoke on luke 7 but um, I think my first, I think it was my first episode that I did with him on the Naked Bible podcast was on the, um, I don't remember what episode that was, but it was years ago. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, my first article um, in the journal for the study of Paul and his letters back in 2015 was entitled, So Shall Your Seed Be, um, Paul's Use of Genesis 15.5 in Romans 4.18, in light of early Jewish deification traditions. And the premise of that was basically that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, which is crucial for the, for the reception of entire Israelite history and then early Judaism, and especially Christian origins and especially Paul, this promise to the patriarchs holds within it sort of the ideal... Um, uh, fulfillment of the people of Israel. What is their intent? What What is promised to them? What's the covenant? Um, Genesis 15 is one of those key texts, and it's where the word of Yahweh takes Abram outside, shows him the, the stars, tells him to behold the heavens, and he, and, the, and he says to him, number the stars if you can number them, so shall your seed be. And so that is interpreted most commonly as a a quantitative promise. You'll have tons of offspring, you know, (laughs) you who are barren, you're going to have tons of offspring. And that's, it's like, Oh, wow. How can that happen? That's definitely true. Definitely there. But lots of early Jews pre-Christianity from Palestine, all the way down to Alexandria in Egypt um, interpreted this, not just, um, quantitatively, but qualitatively, that they would become like the stars. And the way they understood the stars in the ancient Near East and sort of the, it's ubiquitous across the ancient Mediterranean, unless you're like Epicurean or an academic, um, they understood the stars as gods or angels. And so to become as the stars quite literally meant to become like the gods or the angels. And so, um, Specifically, when you read these promises in light of the Torah and the prophets later in Judaism, in early Judaism, pre-Jesus and all this, what you find is this Deuteronomic, especially in Deuteronomy, this understanding that the celestial bodies, sun, moon, stars, are called the Savaot, the hosts of heaven. Um, And this is the common uh, terminology for Yahweh's entourage, his, his heavenly hosts. His armies, it can also be translated. They fight sometimes in Judges. Uh, they fight with Deborah against Sisera. The stars come down from heaven and fight. It's very interesting. 
So you have like warring angels slash warring stars going on there. Very cool stuff. Um, <laughs> awesome. So so it's it's very. But in Deuteronomy, you have this image where the gods that are apportioned over the nations are understood as celestial bodies. And you see this in Deuteronomy 4.19 uh, in the famous text of not making any graven images. You know, you're not supposed to make any idols. And he's, and the author says, not uh, surveys the earthly creatures, you know, not man, woman, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, all that stuff. Um, and says, now look up and behold the heavens, see the sun, moon, stars, all the hosts of heaven, which is the term for the divine hosts. And it says, do not be carried away and worship them. Those that were allotted to all the peoples or nations under the whole heavens. And so this notion of the gods of the nations or the angels of the nations that's prevalent throughout later scripture and later Second Temple Jewish literature, um, some of which is in some Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, and then some in the apocalyptic tradition that didn't make it into all canons. Um, well, some there's some texts in like Ethiopic canons or stuff like that. But but the point is this this tradition that there is gods or princes or angels behind the nations ruling over them goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And so when the, when they understood those gods or deities or angels, whatever you want to call them, the, the Tzavahot, they would look up and um, that's, they're right there. I mean, they're literally the celestial bodies. So, uh, and they, of course, if you're familiar with ancient Near Eastern history at all or Greek history, you know, the, the most powerful gods are often associated with the planets, you know, um, the stars, Jupiter, Venus, Neptune, you know, all these are famous gods in, in Greece, you know. And so this is just a common, it's ubiquitous in the in the ancient Mediterranean that the gods are, the celestial bodies are gods. Now, saying that, I always have to have a little caveat there and say there are philosophers like the Epicureans and the academics that inherit Plato's school that sometimes think that the gods aren't really real or um, so they're more sort of like functionaries to keep society in order and stuff. So all the cults and temples are really to keep the proletariat in line. But for the most part, most of the ancient Mediterranean thought these beings were deities going all the way back to the ancient Near East prior to the Hebrew Bible. So the, the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testaments and, and uh, the New Testament and all the other second temple literature that didn't make it in the Bible, this seems to be commonplace. So if you understand that and you understand that the gods of the other nations, that the other nations worship are those celestial bodies up there, then the promise when it gets read either by Platonists who think that there's the afterlife, the only afterlife there is, is really just a continued life of the soul that's immortal. So a virtuous soul unweighed down with vice could ascend to the heights of heaven and join the stars uh, at the death of the body when it sheds the body off. So that's, they're not, Platonists are not looking forward to some big eschaton, some big apocalypse, you know, it's really just about the, the passing away of the body, shedding off literally the prison house of the flesh, you know, and, and ascending to the heights of heaven. And they, and when you see Jews who are Platonists, like, the famous philosopher Philo in the first century, contemporary with Paul and them, um, writing from Alexandria, he'll say things like, uh, he's all right there, you know, that's his stuff. <laughs> um, so, it, so he, he will, he will say that when he reads the promise of starlight seed, you know, he'll, he'll read it and say, yeah, this is, this is denoting, um, quality, not merely quantity. It's about having immortality and glory and da, 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 and goes through the, the litany of like what it means to be assimilate to the divine or assimilate to God. And this is a technical term in Plato for what we would call deification or um, like the destiny of the righteous or virtuous soul or something. Okay. So that's common in Platonic Judaism, but in apocalyptic Judaism, that's looking for this great final denouement, this final moment, this final end of all things, you know, the current order is all screwed up and the gods of the nations are bad. They're not good. You know, they're not virtuous. Some of the platonic Jews are like, eh, the gods of the nations, whatever, they're fine. But, but if you're an apocalypticist, 
no, 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 no. They're bad. You know, the, the, that's they led the nations astray to worship them and worship all these idols. And so they all need to die. They all need to go. They all need to be judged. So you have these traditions of the judgment of the princes of heaven. You see this in Daniel, um, in Daniel 10 and uh, Daniel 8 and 10 and 12. You see this reverberation of these princes of the nations that are going to fall, you know, and be judged. And then Michael arises victorious, the chief prince of Israel, you know. So um, that tradition gets um, expounded upon in the Second Temple period. Um, and so when they read the, the promise to Abraham, a starlight seed, they see it as a quite literal, um, we will become like those little G gods or angels that had dominion, that had rule, but they're all bad. So when they die, we will literally take their place and inherit the rule of the cosmos, quite literally the promise to Abraham being inheriting the rule of the cosmos. And so this, this is, um, this is exactly what Paul says in Romans four, actually. He says, this is what quoting from Genesis 15. So shall your seed be. This is what my article was all about saying, Paul actually thinks this is going to happen eschatologically. And so, and he ties the resurrection to it. And so my, my dissertation is going to develop these themes further as it relates to the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. And so because the the famous resurrection passage, you know, this is the passage of all passages, you know, and I think we talked about my book chapter on 1 Corinthians 15 and the Deuteronomic background, but uh, for the nature of the resurrection body there that most scholars miss. Um, all this celestial body God stuff, you know, uh, that <laughs> it's, it's very inconvenient. Um, if you're a conservative believing Jew or Christian and you use you, your theology has moved well past the mythology of the ancient Near East and ancient Mediterranean Judaism and early Christian origins where they all still thought the, the stars were gods and angels, you know, it's inconvenient to find out that their famous apostle, the St. Paul, beloved St. Paul, um, annoying St. Paul, um, <laughs> you know, is, is actually teaching these same things. Uh-huh. So uh, when it's, it's, it's eye-opening because right there are critical texts for all subsequent understanding of the nature of the resurrection body. There's not another text in the New Testament about this. There's only that one. So that you better believe people go nuts with that. The Gnostics go crazy with it and develop all kinds of crazy interpretations with it. Um, Orthodox Christians go a different direction with it. These monikers are anachronistic. Um, they don't, you know, if we're reading these texts in their own environs, they don't call themselves that. Um, well, the early Patristics will call the Gnostics, you know, these bad guys, you know. But that, it, it gets thrown around like this sort of a, you know, it just becomes the bad guy label, you know, everybody you don't like is a Gnostic, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like Republicans in America, you know, it's like everyone you don't like is a, is a communist or something. It's like, <laughs> like, ah, oh, they're just communists. It's like, oh, they're a socialist. Do you know what that word means? Well, uh, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it becomes this moniker, but I, I say that to say, these traditions are really important because they shape all of early Christian eschatology. So any, any time you think about, well, what is the Christian hope? You know, what is the destiny of the holy ones, you know, in Christ? What, what, what was this all about? You know, this is, you have this one little narrative of what is supposed to happen. Well, what is currently happening in Paul's day, what he thinks is currently happening upon the resurrection of Jesus. And the only place you get that, there's little hints of it in other texts like Philippians 3 or uh, maybe a couple other passages. But explicitly where he actually narrativizes it is, is in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And that's where you get that narrative of like Paul's apocalypse. Like what the heck is Jesus doing after he's raised from the dead? You know, because he's not here. So like what's going on? You know, and he gives you that little narrative of, well, he's destroying, present tense, the principalities, powers, and rulers, right? And then when they're all destroyed, 
he turns the kingdom, the rule, over to God the Father so that God will be all to all or all in all. I think all to all is probably a better translation. Um, but so the notion is these principalities, powers, and rulers, these are common terms um, for the other deities in the Greek world. If you're reading Greek literature, they're called lords and powers all the time, including Greek Jewish literature. I've read them. You can read them too. There's, there's plenty of examples of this. So, and they quote from the same text from Deuteronomy that Paul does. They quote, you know, the, the same passages. So this is sort of a common trope, but again, not all Jews, obviously, if you've read Paul, you know this, not all Jews are on the same page with that guy. So he is, you know, he's very idiosyncratic. He's got his own sort of reading of those traditions in light of Christ and, and, and how he interprets what's happening with Christ. Okay. So Christ is that Psalm 110 figure, the Lord, who's seated at the right hand of God, who's made, which is sort of, if you're familiar um, with this concept of the right hand in the Old Testament, um, it's the power of Yahweh. You know, it's the judging power. It's it's sort of a, a symbol of his power in the Exodus when he has victory over the gods of Egypt. You know, it's his, with his mighty right hand, you know, or if he's coming against Babylon or something, he's coming with the power of his right hand. So this is it becomes a trope for Yahweh's uh, power as the divine warrior. And so that Psalm 110 has this other Lord, other than the Lord, you know, becoming that right seated at the right hand, you know, and making the enemies a footstool for his feet. Um, and these are the texts that Paul draws on in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe what's happening with Jesus. And by the way, that if you're not familiar with the, well, what does he mean by making the enemies a footstool for his feet? This is, again, a very common trope in the ancient Near East. I mean, you can see this on the reliefs in Babylon, Assyria, everywhere, where if you have a defeated foe, sometimes they bring them before the king. And the king's always like really tall, like a deity. Deities are always tall in the ancient Near East because they're like, if you if you look at like reliefs in Babylon, um, you'll see the deity is sitting down and you'll have all the people like bringing their offerings or whatever to him. Mm -hmm. And they'll be standing up. And he's as tall as they are seated, you know? So the deities are always got to be bigger, you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they always got to be bigger, you know? Um, so, so it's common to see in these reliefs that the enemy of a defeated nation um, will bring the, either the general or the king or whatever, slaves, and they will literally put them as like a bench for their feet and the, and the king will put their feet on them. And it's 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 very symbolic of their destruction. You know, the 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 present king is taken over, and he rules. His reign is at hand. You know that kind of thing. Nice. So that's the image in Psalm one ten and and elsewhere that Paul draws on to say what's happening in the resurrection. He's destroying all these principalities and powers. And there'll be enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. So we're talking about the gods that rule over other nations are all being done away with in Paul's mind. And, and, and they're done away with through the divine warrior, Christ, um, the anointed one, uh, the one that will fight God's war on behalf of him. He's functioning kind of like Michael would in Daniel. Okay. And, and kind of like Melchizedek does in, in, in Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very similar. You, using the same texts. Okay. So when you have those type of traditions, very different readings of the promises to the patriarchs than, than sort of some urbane, sophisticated Platonist, you know. Absolutely. And I think this is what's going on in Corinth is you have these sort of warring interpretations. And one is, you know, if you're an educated, rich elite who knows Platonism very well, it's just sort of the commonplace way of seeing things, or you're familiar with Stoicism, whatever, it's more... It's more beneficial to you to, for this to all be about just sort of the mastery of the soul, you know, and the real opponents aren't out there. They're in here. You know, you've got to master the real opponents. You know, that's the powers that you have to rule over, which, by the way, Philo will use the same exact language that Paul does for these powers and ruling over them and all of that, taking, taking up rule. It was all allegorized as what you have to do in mastering the soul. Okay. And, and 
becoming a virtuous soul. So that, you know, you're already immortal. So when your body dies, it'll just ascend to the heights. Because if the if the soul is weighed down with vice, it'll descend to the underworld, you know. So that you don't want if you're some rich, elite, educated Platonist, that's comfortable. You can go to the temples, you know, on every street corner and do all the festivals and be the, the rich guy around town. You know, you can do all that stuff. Now, if you're an apocalypticist and you're like, no, screw the temples. Like, you don't you dare go eat food sacrificed to idols, you know? Don't you dare go eat that meat. Don't you dare go to those temples. Those are daimonia you're eating with. You know, they're all going to be judged, you know? You don't want to be judged with them. So it's like they see this final judgment. So it's like, whoa, you antisocial crazy person. You know, <laughs> you know a Platonist might say. Um, but, but if think about it, if you're poor in Corinth, especially if you're a slave and you've been oppressed by these empires for so long, this is the only life, you know, and you hear these messages of a great Messiah to set everyone free and turn the powers of the cosmos upside down and set the world to right. And even you will get an inheritance in the whole cosmic order. And you're like, yeah, you know, so it's like <laughs> you can tell you can tell why that would appeal to someone who's feeling down and out with the boot on their neck, you know, yeah. so, yeah. you know, that that will appeal to you. You know, it'll sound really good. Like, I want to be a son of God. Hell yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so um, you know, but if you're already got everything going on and you're the rich guy already, all the powers are good for you. You have no problems, you know, like you, you know, you're eating up all the food and the poor people aren't getting any, you know, and, and drinking all the wine and the poor people aren't getting any. You're the one hosting all the feasts and stuff. Paul gets on them in first Corinthians 11 says, you're not eating the feast of the Lord because you're eat, you you can if you're hungry eat at home you know you, when the, when you bring them in here the Lord's supper you, you, the poor got to eat too this is why people are dying is because of what you're doing he says mm, you know? nice so so Paul is Paul is very hardcore about this and it obviously has ruffled a lot of feathers in Corinth and pissed some people off um, but that's why I like it it's so controversial you know. It's like two radically different ways of reading the same scriptures. Um, of course, there's many different ways, but I, hopefully I'm illustrating the point to say the on the ground realities is not just about like, oh, he's quoting this passage from the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in Jesus. You know, yeah. there's a lot more going around, going on socially and economically and religiously and philosophically that cause them to read text certain different, yeah. different ways, you know. It, often when Protestants first approach these texts, you know, you just want to know what the Bible says or what the Bible means. And you're not thinking about like, there's whole traditions along with these texts and texts that are read together and narratives formed out of them for hundreds of years before you ever get to Paul. So on that, I was, I was just uh, touching on it today. You wrote a paper on the sword and the servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a very, that's very, that's been interpreted so many ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Could you enlighten us on that? Sure. I'll, I'll go much briefer than that last. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Um, uh, but basically, I've just kind of given you the world that my dissertation is living in before. Um, so, yeah, yeah the, the, the Sword and the Servant paper is about Luke 22 um, and the famous passage of the two swords like where Jesus says to sell their cloak and, and take up swords. And you're like, well, what the heck? What happened to take up your cross? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. um, well, so in, in interpreters have had a hell of a time trying to understand what this text means, especially in light of the ethics that seem to be prescriptive in Luke Acts. You know, it doesn't seem to work, you know. Uh, so interpreters have, well, so to set the scene up real briefly is it's at the Lord's Supper. This is unique to Luke. It's not in any other gospel. So, only in Luke do you have this scene at the table where he quotes from Isaiah 53 that he must be numbered with the transgressors and that in him it has its fulfillment. So in that same context, the, the disciples who are at the table with him ask him, 
Um, uh, it, well, so Jesus sets it up this way. He says, when I sent you out without, um, you know, money belt or sash or whatever, you're not, you weren't lacking anything, were you? And they're like, no, you know, we, yeah, we're, we weren't lacking anything. And he says, okay, but now you were to sell your cloak, which is the one of the only things he said they needed when they went out <laughs> to, to buy a sword for the scripture has its fulfillment in me. And he reads that Isaiah 53 passage and he must be numbered with the transgressors. And so, and they say, hey, look, we have two swords. And he goes, that's enough. <laughs> and so you, you're like, this is such a weird text. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, what the hell are two swords going to do against the Roman Empire? You know, obviously nothing, you know. So this is just kind of like silly. Like, what is, it can't be like a literal, okay, you got two swords. Now we can take them all on, you know. Like, <laughs> clearly that's not what it means. So what is going on here? It's kind of cryptic. Well, it, there's a literary, what I did in this paper, and it, I still haven't published that thing because uh, I've had a million other things going on. I will publish this, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, there's a chiastic structure and, and outline to this text where you, a chiasm is kind of like an A and then it has an A down here in the story and then a B and then a B prime down here and then a C like right in the middle. And that's sort of the crux so the stories, uh, sometimes stories in scripture, in ancient Near Eastern literature, in Greek literature, do that for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's stylistic. Sometimes it's just to help memorize. Um, uh, it, ha it has performative aspects. Some people say whatever. But it gets way overblown. People go nuts with these chiasms, looking for them everywhere. But here, I think, is a very legitimate example of this. Because you have, in Luke, rearranged material from Mark that's in a totally different order in Mark. For example, and you have unique material that's only in Luke that fits this shape. For example, but earlier before this story in verse 35, up at, up at the top of this story, when they when, once they're all sit down in the upper room in the meal, blah, blah, blah. He calls out Peter and says that Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed on your behalf that your faith would not fail. Again, that's unique to Luke. It's not in any of the other Gospels. So this, he calls out Peter individually, saying Satan is asked to sift him. And then he responds positively, just like the group. Oh, you know, Master, I would go with you unto death, you know. And he's like, no, 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 no. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. You know, once the cock crows, you're going to deny me. And he's like, and, you know, can't believe it, right? So, so, um, then, so you have this foreseeing of Peter's denial. That's like the A. And then the B is when he turns to his disciples. And, he, and that's when he says the thing with the, the swords. So he's foreseeing their denial. And he's actually initiating it, almost like a director of a play. Like this is in fulfillment of scripture, that I must be numbered with the transgressors. So the way historically the a majority of interpreters take this is when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, which again is only in Luke. It's not in the other gospels. When, they, when he quotes that text, what interpreters will traditionally do is they'll say, oh, this is referring to the two criminals he's crucified next to. The reason why they do this is really not until the medieval period, is that you have these, once, once you have a fourfold gospel canon and the gospels are being read together, and people have been harmonizing them for a long time or whatever, and scribes are copying all four, you know, because originally they're written in different places, different times, you know, have their own theology, their own narrative, you know. But later when they're being scribally put together, what you find is in Mark, you'll have later scribes, this is not in any early manuscripts of Mark, but later scribes will add the quotation of Isaiah 53, he must be numbered among the transgressors to the scene where Jesus is hanging next to two criminals. Uh, okay. And they actually add it in there. And I think that's Mark 16, I think is a crucifixion, I think. But if you, if you're in any modern Bible, any modern trans, English translation, they will take that verse out and they will put it down in the notes. And so you'll skip a verse because they'll say no early MSS, no early manuscripts, 
have this. It's only some later main, medieval manuscripts that put it in. But that's after you're reading all the Gospels together. So it shows that later scribes are like, oh, yeah, Luke 22, that's what he quotes. That, that's what he means. He, they're, he, they're hanging next to two <laughs> criminals. Well, if you're just reading Luke and you only have Luke, you don't have Mark, you don't have John, you don't have Matthew. You're only reading Luke in the first century community and you hear this story. You don't think that. The numbering with the transgressors means they take up their swords. Mm. So Jesus is counted with a bunch of transgressors. And so right smack in the middle. So if the A was seeing Peter's denial, B was foreseeing all the disciples' denial, that they would sell their cloak, one of the only things they need, and take up swords. C right in the middle is the prayer, and where he tells all his disciples, pray that you are not led into temptation. Right? This is the big temptation. Only in Luke. In the first temptation of Christ, back in Luke 4, only Luke tells us that the end, when Jesus overcame Satan, overcame the temptation where Adam failed, you know, Jesus succeeded. Um, the, uh, the narrator tells you, and Satan left him until an opportune time. This is unique to Luke. So you fast forward to Luke 22. And before this scene in Luke 22, you have the narrator tell you that Satan enters into Judas. So he's been like gone out of the narrative. You haven't heard from him. You haven't seen him back when he failed with Jesus in Luke, uh, Luke 3 or 4. Um, and so fast forward all the way to Luke 22. And there at the meal at the table, Satan is literally there in Judas. Mm. Like Satan incarnate. So, but, and <laughs> yeah, Christians miss this all the time. Um, but Luke literally has Judas as Satan incarnate, literally. Um, mm. Just like God is possessing Jesus, you know, so too Satan is possessing Judas. So the way Luke reads this story of like the, the, the arrest of Jesus is this sort of Satan coming against God, this final showdown, you know, so the final temptation. And he's told the disciples along the way, hey, when you're delivered up before the powers, God, the spirit will give you the words to say, you know, take up your cross, follow me. You know, he's prepared them, you know, what, how, Lord, teach us how to pray, how John taught his disciples. How's he, what does he teach them to pray? You know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? Or yeah. the evil one. Um, so, so they're already supposed to be praying this. So when you get to the end in 22 and that sea of the chiasm right at the crux, he tells them, pray that you all are not led to into temptation because he knows Satan's right there, you know, and what, what happens? They're all found sleeping. Mm. And so immediately here, here it is. If A was foreseeing Peter's denial and B was foreseeing the group's denial and C was that prayer. Pray that you're not led into temptation. What's the next scene? If this structure holds, the group denies. So the so here comes Judas with all the with all the you know soldiers and everybody and the high priest servants and all that. And they take up, they say, shall we, the group, the disciples, plural, right. not singular Peter. Don't read John into Luke. They are separate stories. For Luke, the group says. Shall we now strike with the sword? And one of them, one of them, plural. So they're all sort of on the same page with this. <laughs> one of them pulls out the sword and cuts off the high priest servants here, right? And what does Jesus do? He heals it. He heals him. Yeah, yeah. It, but first he rebukes him. He's like, "Stop! Enough of this!" Like he like just really gets on him, and he and then he heals. The, the high priest servants here. This is only in Luke. Hmm. This is part of the theme. Just, just like only in Luke, Isaiah 53. How does the healing come to Israel and thus through Israel, the nations eventually? It comes through his stripes. It comes through his wounds. It does not come through the conquest of Rome or the conquest of evil. That's not how it comes. So 
in 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 Luke 22, he's actually enacting Isaiah 53. It's the one, it's by his stripes that we are healed. And so the ones that are going to take him away to kill him, he actually heals. So he's like, it's the act, it's the exact opposite of what the disciples were, were doing by taking up the sword. Right. Because then Jesus turns to the to the whole Satan and his minions, basically, with Judas and all the people with him to come to take him away. And he turns to them, he says, have you come at me as if I was the robber with swords and clubs? So Satan's minions are the ones that carry the sword. And what are his disciples doing? They're taking up the sword just like all of Satan's boys. Yep. So, so he's like, have I, it's basically like, in your face, if you've been paying attention to the narrative, he's told him over and over and over and over and over again, take up your cross, follow me. This was not some sort of like devotional, you're going to have a hard time at work kind of thing, you know, being a Christian, you know, that's not what's in view here. It's the Roman government is going to kill me the way they do any brigand. So you're going to have to go with me to that. That's what it means to follow me. And so they deny him. They take up their sword just like Rome does. Because what was the thing that Jesus was tempted with way back in the beginning? He was tempted with the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world, because they're mine to give, Satan says. (laughs) What are the disciples arguing about at that table? They're arguing who's going to be first in the kingdom. Yep. (laughs) So they want the power. They want to rule. They want to carry the sword. Boom, boom. You know, they want to be that. And so they completely missed it. They denied Jesus by this. And here's where you get the little A prime. They deny him. Now, normally in the story, if you're reading Mark and Matthew, you have this thing where he's taken to um, Pilate's house and you have the questioning of him and all of that. Right. That's normally what happens. Or Caiaphas's house. Sorry. The high priest. So you, th- that's the story that you have next. Not in Luke. Luke moves up Peter's denial first. So it'll fit the structure, you know. Ah, OK. Peter denies three times first. And then you have the scene at Caiaphas's house after. So Luke has actually arranged it to where if you're paying attention, the meaning of this is clear. So the, the the picking up of two swords that Jesus um, told you to do, does that have to do like modern um, sort of evangelicals, uh, you know, um, gun mobs basically do from the pulpit who say, we got to, you know, buy, buy our firearms, you know, Second Amendment, Second Amendment. You know, this Jesus has literally told us we need to take up the sword, you know, and, and they, they just murder that text. They just destroy that text. They literally are doing the opposite of what the text is actually calling for. He literally is prophesying in real time what is going to take place when each group denies him. He tells him, he tells Peter exactly what will happen when he denies him. The cock will crow three times and then you will deny me. He's like, no, 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 no. And then he tells the group, you will sell your cloak now and you will buy a sword. Oh, here's our two swords. That's enough. The scripture has its fulfillment in me. I'm numbered with the transgressors. So you see, so he's literally numbered with transgressors. Who has the power to take up the sword in Rome? Only Rome. Yep. You have all the freedom. This is the Pax Romana. Only Rome has the power to take up the sword. Only Rome has the power to kill. You can have all your own laws, your own temples, blah, blah, blah. You know, but the Pax Romana states to keep the keep the peace, only they are the bearer of the sword. And so here they are taking up the swords themselves, acting like they're with Satan and, and Rome and all that, you know. So so it, yeah, that 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 uh that paper is really important because it just throws um a lot most interpreters for a loop who try to make it say the opposite, you know. And traditionally this is pretty popular. It's it's, it's justified a lot of Christian violence over the years. I know, and that's why I'm so looking forward to it because that's what I was touching on. And thank you for that because I was able to pull that even just out of the uh, out of the abstract. Um, 
So because I have always uh, railed against the idea of, oh, look, Jesus said we could buy guns. <laughs> yeah, it's quite. I mean, literally, if you if you're if you want some like literal application from Luke, I'm not saying this is good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying if that's what you want. If you want to go to the Bible and you want some one-to-one ethical correspondence for the prescriptively for the, for the present period, then what you would have to say is from this text, if you want to use this text, that by going and getting guns to defend yourself from the people that are coming against you for being a follower of Christ means you are literally joining Satan. Yeah. Now, I didn't write this crap, okay? <laughs> Some first century guy, you know, this is, don't get mad at me, get mad at Luke. I didn't write that. Right. You know? Like, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just, an, I'm just a humble historian. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying, hey, here's what this ancient guy said. Yeah. Um, so That's not the American Jesus I grew up with. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. But, but, this, but the reason why this is so important, I mean, it's obvious. But I mean, ethically, it's obvious, right? But but it, it's it's bigger than that. It's big. It's, this is not just some. Oh well, I guess all Christians should be pacifists. It's bigger than that. It's this Jesus who does this is the one that's vindicated by being raised from the dead. In other words, if he had done it the Satan way, you know, and took the kingdoms, the kingdoms would never have been his in the first place. The only way, this is Philippians 2. If you want ever, if you ever want to see like what does Philippians 2 look like practically, go read Luke 22. Okay. The whole idea of emptying yourself, even though you have power to wax all of them, <laughs> like in a heartbeat, you let them destroy you. And because you believe that it's it's sort of testing the fidelity. This is a crazy belief, but early Christians literally became martyrs over this stuff. Ignatius. <laughs> Literally. I mean, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? So the, they, they took this very seriously. That fidelity to their deity looked like this. It was all based and hinged on the resurrection from the dead. Because the resurrection from the dead is an eschatological doctrine that says that God will vindicate the faithful in the end. By get, like, if, if they're staying faithful even to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, and for that reason, God exalted him and gave him a name above every name so that every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? That whole, literally all of the cosmos bowing, so divine powers, underworld powers, human powers, all of them bowing to Jesus is in the end, in the eschaton, is because he did this. So, so if you want to think about like kingdom theology and what does the kingdom mean and what that's what it means. Yeah. It's that self-emptying, it's the kenosis, mm-hmm. the idea, the emptying of himself. Um, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, right? So that self-giving love results in the rule of the whole cosmos. It does not bringing the sword only results in the sword. Yeah. And I'm wondering what uh, Michael Gorman is going to do in his Romans commentary with Romans eight, with Paul saying being more than conquerors, not conquerors, but being more, being more, you know, sword. It's not about sword. It's about the more. And, and, you know, Paul, I I dealt with a little bit of this with Paul in second Corinthians, you know, power through weakness and, and, and. Oh, it's I huge in Second Corinthians. I bear the marks of Jesus. Yeah. You know, I bear the marks of Jesus. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm not trying to be like this world. I'm trying to less of me, John the Baptist, you know, the forerunner. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. More, more of him. So, yeah. Yeah. This is part of, I mean, if, if we were to get, if I was to get real technical, like in the historical, uh, within the context of second temple Judaism, I would say, this is the, the, the whole cruciformity thing, um, uh, following the cruciform Messiah. Yes, it was radical. Da, 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 da. Uh, I'm not taking that away from Christians. But what is not, it's not new, this concept of the noble death of the faithful one that results in saving the people. That goes all the way back to Maccabees and long before. 
So, I mean, Isaiah 53, most Jewish scholars and I, and I, and a lot of Christian scholars too thought is just originally about the faithful Israel. And I think Daniel reads Isaiah 53 that way, the Maskelim, like sort of the poor faithful. Um, they're the ones that lead many to righteousness. Um, Daniel 12 says they're, they're quoting that Maskelim from Isaiah 53 um, from the suffering ones. And almost all commentators agree on that. And I, I agree with that too. So when you, so when you get this conflation of like, well, it's talking about the Messiah, but what do you have in the new Testament? Yes. Messiah is the Isaiah 53 guy for sure. Luke is doing that for sure. Um, but it assumes that the same spirit that came onto Christ is the same spirit given to his body. He's just the head and we're all the body of the Messiah. So it's it's a corporate messianism. It's one that says, yes, you have a head, but there's a whole body. So what, what Jesus does, and this is why the in Christ stuff, if you want to know what Paul's all about, that's it. I mean, everything is in Christo, everything. Everything's about being in Christ. So, uh, and Gorman gets it very, very right. And, and uh, I, Gorman is a close friend. I love him very much. He wrote me recommendations before. I, I really love that guy. But um, uh, it, w- yeah, we've talked about this before. It's, 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 it's corporate messianism. It's you're participating in this messianic mission. You know, it's you see, I think that where you see it the most pronounced is Colossians because mm. um, in Colossians. Well, if I think Paul probably wrote that, maybe not. I don't know. Who knows? I, I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, uh, man, this is I, I know that some I know that some people have uh, pointed out, you know, that they don't see Messiah in Isaiah 53. You know, the word. Well, but the, tar- that, the Targums, yeah, but the Targums have it there, though. The Targums put it so. That is what you're saying, you know. It's there. Well, targums are late, but but the, the, yeah. the, but that's not the point. The point is that the idea in Colossians of that um, that he's filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of the Messiah. That's a crazy thing to say in Colossians. Um, if if your if your soteriology is traditionally Augustinian in the West, which is like all of the Western Church, <laughs> um, uh, then it's that's a problematic text. Um, this notion of that Messiah's sufferings were lacking. There was something lacking about them. Um, that they weren't just finished on the cross. You know, to tell us die, it is finished. Well, not really. <laughs> so, uh, according to Colossians, you know, because the suffering of the body is quite literally the suffering of Christ as well. So that suffering continues in the body. So in that body leads others to righteousness. And so that's the sort of model. And you see that in Daniel 12. It's the many that are leading others to righteousness. This is a, so this is an ancient Jewish phenomenon. And you see this in in Maccabees where the faithful seven sons in two Maccabees seven um, are martyred and give their lives. And they're trying to stay because they're staying faithful to Torah. They're staying faithful to Yahweh. Um, even though this filthy Greek king is, is telling them to eat pork and blaspheme your God and blah, blah, blah. And they won't do it. And they give these like heroic speeches of that, that you would almost find in the Greek noble death traditions and philosophers and stuff like these sort of sage, righteous um, Jewish sons that are representatives. They're the faithful ones amidst all of this unfaithful Israel, you know, Israel's been unfaithful and they've brought the Greeks against us. So they're going to be the faithful martyrs unto death. And the last one says that we are dying for the sins of our brothers. And then he asked God, the seventh son, he asked God to see their faithfulness, their fidelity, same terms in Greek you find in the new Testament, same exact language. Um, and see, see our fidelity and stop the plague on the people, you know, stop the violence on the people. So their death would literally be atoning in that sense, in that sense. So this is 200 years before Jesus. So these, yeah. so these tropes are not new. I think sometimes Christians, because it plays well in Christian theology and it preaches, boy, does it preach, you know, we tend to forget that, yeah, Jews were saying this kind of stuff for hundreds of years. Like, this is not like the new Christian doctrine that's like, 
radical new Christianity. Like, screw those Jews. We're Christians now. You know, and I say that because I say that on purpose because there is a lot of anti-Semitism in the early church. A lot. It is ubiquitous in the early church. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you got all kinds of horrible things being said about Jews, not by all the church fathers, but some of them. Oh my gosh. You read epistle of Barnabas in the second century. Oh, it's terrible, (laughs) terrible, terrible. I mean, like, so a lot of anti-Semitism um, in the early church. So that's why I make that caveat. I just want to make clear that these ideas were Jewish ideas long before they were Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. they inha- The Christians inherit all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. in, and on, in the Catholic tradition that carried on all the way, actually all the way up to today, we, 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 uh, our whole church is based on martyrs over the last 2000 years. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. The church period. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The um, yeah. your uh, then your next paper, and I, I want to highlight this on purpose because I want people to anxiously wait for these papers coming up, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, you, you have another one coming oh, up called, <laughs> called uh, the ascent and torment, the apocalyptic juxt- just that juxtaposition of an Abrahamic victorious ascent trope in two Corinthians 12 1 through 10. Pray tell. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to give a couple sentences to this one. That's, that's good. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, I'm I I talk too much. So, um, that, that basically what I'm saying in that paper is there is a background that I think has gone neglected in a lot of scholarship that is probable um, b- behind the ascent, the famous ascent of uh, Paul into the third heavens in two Corinthians twelve. Mm. Um, I'm saying two Corinthians like the Brits say it because it's not actually the second book to the Corinthians, you know, who, and it's a pastiche of probably two or three at least. Um, so just say two Corinthians just to label the book. So in two Corinthians 12, there's the famous ascent to the third heaven. Um, and there's this angel of Satan sent to torment him. He says a thorn in his flesh. So people have tried to like, what the heck is this thorn? What does this mean? You know, where does this ascent thing come from? There's lots of heavenly ascents in early Jewish literature, pre-Christian and after-Christian. The apocalyptic literature is filled with them. But there is an interesting tradition here about Abraham's ascent to heaven that is not, I haven't really seen referenced in scholarship in the last, I guess, 50 years or so I looked Um, that I haven't seen, uh, where there's this tradition in Genesis 15 that taking Abraham outside and telling him to number the stars, to look and number the stars, there's traditions in the rabbis, the earliest rabbinic commentaries we have that are hard to date, you know, somewhere third, fourth century CE after Christianity, but a lot of the traditions are old. Um, but then you find in apocalyptic literature these traditions as well that are some of them even pre-Christ of interpreting that Genesis text to be an apocalypse where Abraham being taken outside, some interpreters thought it meant taken out of the world. Okay. Not just like out of his tent. Right, right. Out of literally the cosmos and into heaven. And... um, and that he looks down at the stars. And the reason why is chabetz, uh, the term in Hebrew that's used here. Um, one of the rabbis in Genesis Rabbah, a famous Midrashic collection of rabbinic interpretations of Genesis, um, uh, has this, one of the rabbis says that um, chabetz means to look down and quotes Proverbs 8 about God and creation when he's looking down at all that he's created. And it uses that same term. And the rabbis will do this. Um, They'll find the term somewhere, other texts and like, Oh, this is what it means, you know? And so um, um, this is called Gezerah uh, Shavah. Uh, This is a rabbinic interpretive technique, you know? So this is, uh, so, so the rabbis say, well, he's taken outside, outside the world, because he looks down at the stars, you know, um, and he's told number them if you can, you know, and so rabbis 
And you find this in a famous apocalyptic text that's preserved um, in like later church Slavonic that probably is originally in Greek, maybe even some Hebrew, we don't know. Um, I have a friend at Harvard who did her PhD on trying to uh, go through the recensions of this text, and it's really complicated. Because some, some, some of the churches that preserve some of this really, really ancient literature, we only have in much later languages. We don't have any of the original Greeks or Hebrew of, of some of these texts. So this is one of the Apocalypse of Abraham is one of these uh, famed apocalypses that only survives in old church Slavonic mainly. Mm. And there's different recensions of it. And it's like quoted in different Slavonic fathers and stuff. Anyways, I say that to say it, most scholars date it somewhere between second century BCE to around first century CE. Okay. So it's somewhere around the time of like early Judaism, Christian origins. So these traditions are in the air um, and it's a retelling of Genesis 15 where it's literally taken outside. You have this eternal mighty one, it calls the word of Yahweh, takes Abraham outside the cosmos and gives him this big heavenly tour as if he were Enoch in one Enoch and these other apocalyptic texts right. where you have these tours of heaven. So Abraham gets that and he's taken up to heaven and he looks down at the stars, just like the rabbis say. And, and, and he looks down at them and the eternal mighty one says, you know, number the, the stars if you can number them. And, and Abraham says, how can I, for I am but a man, I'm but a human being. Hmm. And the notion is, and he says, their number and their power, your seed will be, and they will rule over nations and men. And so it connects this idea of not just numeric promise, right? It's becoming literally like those hosts um, and ruling over nations, right? Because those angels or gods of nations literally rule. So this becomes this victorious ascent trope. You know, Abraham gets this promise of like victory and my seed will rule, you know. So <laughs> this is like how a lot of Jews would have read these promises. Like this is foretelling the day when we will, our seed will trample underfoot all these powers in heaven and will rule supreme. So you can imagine how this tradition is used of the ascent of their, their patriarch, their father, you know. We will ascend, we will rule, we will take up dominion, blah, blah, blah. It becomes this victorious ascent trope. Okay. And what Paul, I think, is doing is flipping it on its head. So when he ascends to the third heaven and hears the unutterable words, you know, he hears the heavenly mysteries and all that, just like the great, you know, heavenly seers get in these journeys. Um, he's like, oh, yeah, I got all that too. You know, I'm one of those guys, you know. Uh, <laughs> but but he, it doesn't end with this, Boom, boom, we rule, we take over the cosmos. It doesn't end that way at all. It ends with his torment from an angel from Satan. Mm. So it flips the, why, why do this? Because how did the Messiah come? Did he come like, boom, boom, kill everyone, take over? That's not how he came. He no. came as the crucified Messiah. Yeah. So Paul does this whole litany of horrible crap that's happened to him. You know, all through 11, before you get to this ascent passage, which would normally be used to, like, vindicate, you know, a great prophet who's speaking on behalf of God and, and uh, we're going to be victorious and we're going to reign supreme, I tell you, and all this kind of stuff. So it, that's how the trope would use. But it's not used that way in Paul. It's used, like, in the context of him saying, man, I was shipwrecked. I was left for dead. I was blah, blah, blah. You know, all these horrible things that have happened to him. And instead of when he ascends on high, it's not this great, you know, pomp and circumstance parade, like you're going to rule everything. He's actually tormented by one of these angels of Satan. Um, awesome. And so this is this is a Christological, a Christ-shaped rereading of the tradition okay. where it flips it on his head. Instead of the victorious Abrahamic ascent trope, it becomes the, oh, no, I am hurting and I'm suffering just like Christ. Because he prefaces it by saying, hey, am I a Hebrew? Oh, yeah. Am I an Israelite? Oh, yeah. Am I a seed of Abraham? This is the only time in the Corinthian correspondence he mentions the seed of Abraham. Okay. He doesn't mention it anywhere else. Only with reference to his ascent. You see? Yeah. So if, if he's referencing the ascent of the famous promises to the seed of Abraham that they would be victorious, 
you know, and then says, oh, this horrible thing happened to me. It's because he's rereading them. He's turning apocalyptically. He's turning it on its head and saying, no, the real victory only comes through the suffering. Because he says at the end of that Hebrew, Hebrew, Israelite, uh, Jew, he says, or seed of Abraham, he says, in a follower of Christ, I am the greatest of these. Why? Because the follower of the Messiah, you know, Messiah is the rule supreme. He's the king. He's the Lord of all. Why? Because he suffered all these things just like Christ did. Okay. Unlike his interlocutors who just come with their fancy letters from Jerusalem saying, we're the super apostles. And he's like, nah. He's like, I'm a real apostle. I'm the real thing. Because look at all these sufferings I did. You see? So it's, it's a way of flipping the common Israelite trope or a common Jewish trope of the day, I, I would argue, on its head. Awesome. That's that's the point of that. Okay. And if you ever and, want to skip ahead to any of these, let me know. I'm just, I'm just trying to highlight a few of these papers because they the the uh, the abstracts look really awesome. <laughs> so, you so I, I was actually supposed to publish that in okay. the journal for the study of New Testament, but I didn't make the deadline over the break um, because I was in the process of doing my application with Edinburgh. So it, it just conflicted um, with transferring programs. So okay. I wasn't able to get it out in time. So I will publish it. It just, it just hasn't been edited for publication yet. So we look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. cool. So, then you have the, then you have the beautified feet of Jesus. The, oh God. We I like doing that. <laughs> What's that? Survey of all of David Burnett's scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's why I'm, I'm trying to highlight a few of these. And if there's one joke to, to go ahead and forward to, let me well, know. Well, um, I, I, I'll just, let's just limit it to one of my, we'll just do this one as the last one. Um, okay. And then if we have any questions, we can do that. Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation.